Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. This is Melissa Obratka from America. And this is Tabitha Ackert from Australia. Thank you so much for listening from wherever you are. Um, it brings Melissa and I both so much joy to have a look um, where we actually put our podcast up. We can see a worldwide map and we can see who listens. And it's super exciting for us to be pressing on different countries and know that there's people in Poland listening to us and people in the UK and Germany and Malaysia and Ru- we even had Russia and um, it's crazy. India. Yeah, it was. We are two little tooth nerds on Zoom with each other, giggling as we look at that most of the world is lighting up. So we're pretty excited. There's a couple of countries that haven't listened. So, you know, if you're in Israel or Iran, please tune in. <laughs> we want to light your area of the map up. <laughs> please, please. And we have had over 4,000 downloads of our episodes, and that's like mind boggling to us. So, thank you again so much for your support and your love and your reviews and your comments. We absolutely adore everyone who has just been a part of uh, this journey we're on. So, thank you, thank you so much. No, we're very, very appreciative. And before we get into today's episode, we're just going to give a little bit of an update on what Melissa and I have been up to and what we're doing. We both actually are in the process of launching our own businesses. So we're going to kind of do a little self shout out and we're going to let you know how you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook as well. So Melissa, start with what you're up to. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's been kind of a wild ride. Um, I have had some amazing uh, friends and mentors in dentistry who've been telling me that it's, uh, I have to get what I know out into this world and I am stealing from dentistry by not sharing more. So I have been motivated to, um, build some courses in a community that's going to be launching in May. Um, That's just going to help. Thank you. (laughs) That's going to, um, my mission is to help other hygienists be badasses at what they do. So I have uh, recently changed my Instagram handle to it's the badass hygienist. So please make sure to follow me if uh, you aren't already. Um, And yeah, so my company is actually called Badass Hygiene. And um, I'm just going to be sharing the 25 years plus of um, my life in dentistry. And I want to kind of fast forward for you as a newer hygienist or maybe a hygienist who feels that they are kind of stuck and they need a little kickstart and and maybe a reigniting your passion of why you got here in the first place. I want to be able to kind of like streamline that process for you. I've made so many mistakes along the way, and that's where my growth and learning has occurred and and the things I've done wrong. So I want to kind of just put that out there and share that for you and and help you get to that like badass level faster. Because what I learned over my 25 years in, in this field is that the better you are at this, the more autonomy you get within your um, operatory, and then more compliance you get with your patients, and you actually enjoy your profession more. So, because at the end of the day, like I got here to help people, and I know that that's what a lot of us like to do is help people and and keep them healthy and prevent disease. So, um, it, you know, it hasn't been easy. It's it's there's days that I still get frustrated and get upset and cry, <laughs> but um, it all comes from a good place in my heart. So that's my mission is to just help other hygienists embrace their inner badass and be the uh, owner of their operatory. How about you, Tab? You've been doing some amazing stuff too. <laughs> so uh, kind of similar to Melissa, we're, we're actually twins. <laughs> I feel like that all the time. I've been, I was getting some questions about, could you teach this course or why aren't you kind of sharing this knowledge a bit more? So I've started a business called Level Up Preventative Care. I truly believe the basics in dentistry are the really important things like preventative care, oral hygiene instructions. And that's where my passion is, is in preventative dentistry and in non-surgical implant maintenance and periodontal maintenance. 
So my business will be specifically focused on preventative and implants. So I've launched some courses and one of them sold out in the first two weeks. So I was pretty excited. Thank you to those people who purchased it. <laughs> and um, and that, that was on periodontal classifications and implementing it. And then I have another course at the end of the year, which is going to be understanding dental implants for dental hygienists. So that so my courses really are aimed at dental hygienists. And then I'm going to be doing some office consulting, but it will be around dental implants. So protocols for pre-placement and post-placement and, and implementing them into streamlining your practice. And again, it's like you, it's just the stuff that I've learned through trial and error and the traveling and the the courses that I've been to, I, I want to share that because Melissa and I have both been in that situation. I was laughing actually, I was watching one of Melissa's um, presentations online the other night and she sh- there was a face of her like going, ah, and I was like, I actually have the same picture, but of someone else, obviously, in my presentation of how I felt when I started as well. And I was like, oh, it's so funny. We're so similar, but we had that yuck oh my God, I want to run away. And it was really horrible. And I don't want other people to feel like that. And I think it's exactly, we're coming very similar then. We just want to share our knowledge and not have other people feel like that. So it's a bit nerve wracking, as you said. It's a bit, um, it's very vulnerable kind of feeling to put yourself out there. And I had thought about doing this and I actually built my website myself, which I can't believe I did. So I'm just amazed that I pulled that off but I actually built it two months before I told anyone about it because I built it but then was like oh I don't know about this <laughs> I'm not really sure about this and then I had a couple of wines I was like ah oh, I'm putting it out to the world <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah so it is yeah it's hard I think it's 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 very nerve-wracking thinking of something putting it out there and then wondering like what happens if no one buys a ticket or if no one uses my business and then this is kind of embarrassing (laughs) totally but so many like doubtful things that go through your head during the process and it's a lot of freaking work too yeah but you know there's those moments like I I know you've had them too Tabitha when you're educating where somebody has like the light bulb goes on or they ask you a question and you're like yes that's exactly what you need to do or that's how you have to think about this and and I always try to tell myself because like I still get the the nervous butterflies when I speak or or, like, I mean, we haven't done in person in America in a a really long time, but like if there's one person that gets the message, then it's worth me doing it. So I'm just trying to kind of go into it with that aspect too. I hope it'll be more than one. (laughs) Same, Same. So thank you all the people that have supported Melissa and I so far with the podcast, with our businesses, personally, professionally, we really appreciate it and we're really excited that we've both been given this opportunity to give back within the community as well and that people trust us to put us their brains in our hands and learn yeah. some stuff from us. So we thank you very, very much and we don't take it lightly. Not at all. Not at all. So, you know, we are still, we still giggle and send each other text messages when we see, you know, oh my gosh, we have 4,000 downloads or oh my <laughs> gosh, somebody wrote a beautiful review, you know, so it, it it's still, it, it's very humbling and we love it. And we are just so honored for people to be on this journey with us and, and want to know what we know and want to listen to what we have to share. So thank you. And I want to shout out to um, Pamela Sargent over here in uh, Maine. She is a rock star hygienist. And every time she listens to an episode, I get such an awesome text message from her. She's just like so sweet and so inspired. And she's like, I just pulled over to text you this while she's driving and listening. So <laughs> shout out to Pam Sargent. Um, she is part of our EMS GBT army here in the US. She is uh, also an independent hygienist who is starting her own business as well. And um, I just wanted to give her a shout out. I'm really proud of her to see all the things that she's doing. She's moving and shaking. And thank you for being such a loyal listener, Pam. Thank you. And if you have ideas for what you would like to hear on future podcasts, let us know because obviously we've got lots of ideas. We always have ideas of what we want to do and talk about, but we also want to help you. So if maybe it's not something we thought of or something that you really feel um, you want to hear, actually, someone messaged me the other day, I hadn't had a chance to tell you, they'd love a burnout episode oh. on how to, how to fight burnout. And I thought that's, that's brilliant. Great. 
we'll bump that up the list in our um, things. So let us know when it, you know, it's something that might be on our list, but we'll decide to put it up higher and, and get to it sooner. Absolutely. And we've got a bunch of amazing dental professionals that we will be scheduling some interviews with. We just, sometimes it takes us a little bit to figure out the timing of all the different time zones we're working with. So be patient. We got some rock stars on the way. So let's uh, dive into our topic today. Yeah. So it's actually Oral Cancer Awareness Month. And so we thought this was a good time to do an oral cancer episode. So we've obviously done a great episode with Jill when we talked about treating the oncology patient. But today we're going to dive a little bit more into actual oral cancer. And we really are, as dental hygienists and all dental clinicians, play such a crucial role in the um, in recognizing it, in diagnosing it and getting it early for our patients. So we are that frontline worker when it comes to oral cancer. So I think it's something a really important month, a really important subject. And I thought we had to really address it on the podcast as well. I agree. And when we talk about dentistry being essential, this is one of the screenings that is so essential for us to be performing each time we see our patients. So I know um, the burdens that we have as our time management issues as of, as clinicians, the, the uh, duties that we need to perform in the time that we are given that, that ratio usually is pretty far off, but this is something that's a non-negotiable for me and Tabitha and, and many of our colleagues that we are um, that we work with. And um, there's many great resources out there too. Susan Cotton here in the U.S. is a uh, advocate, amazing, amazing yeah. advocate for oral cancer, and she has a company centered around this. So please go check her out. She um, she's so passionate, and and she has such wonderful resources too. So please go check out Susan Cotton, connect with her. Um, we got to get her on the podcast as well. Yeah, I just thought that. All right, we'll have to get her. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, Susan, we're contacting you. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and yeah, so again, have grace with yourself. Start, just decide what, okay, I, I'm not doing this now. Don't feel bad that you haven't. We get it. But just make today the day that you start doing these screenings. Yeah. So one of the things I actually start with is when my patient sits down and I'm doing the medical history, I actually ask them, do you have any lumps, bumps or ulcers in your mouth that haven't cleared for more than two weeks? So that's the first step to the screening is, are you self-aware of something? Are you noticing something? So it's really important because then, you know, they might alert you to something that they didn't think was relevant. You know, Absolutely. that they've got a lump in their lymph node or, yeah, I've had this lump or, yeah, I thought I had a, I thought I bite, bit myself. But when you have a look, it's not a bite and it's been there, you know, and they can tell you lots of information straight away. And then obviously the medical history is also a really important screening aspect because are they smoking? How much are they drinking socially? Um, have they been treated for other cancers in the past? And also, is there a history of any kind of oral cancer? You know, and some of this is your initial patient screening when you're going a lot more into depth because you've already got that answer about previous cancers and stuff like that in the first time you've met them. But making sure you've got that somewhere easily accessible to read or realise because that's all an important part of the screening. It's not just what we're looking in the mouth, but knowing the risk factors that we can talk to our patients about as well. Have they had HPV in the past? You know, Absolutely. have you got that on your medical history? And this is not a question just for women. No. This is a question for men and women because we know men pass this on to women a lot and give the, you know, and this is why we've got the vaccine more for cervical cancer for them. But they when we have a look at the statistics of oral cancers resulting from HPVs, men actually have higher numbers. So that's a really important question for our men and women. Have you had HPV in the past? And I think it's a question we should have on all our medical history forms. And it's something we have to get a little bit more comfortable with. Absolutely. It's not always the easiest conversation to have, but it's an important one. And and to just add what you were saying, Tabitha, with the medical history, so many of our um, practice management programs have a way for you to put alerts into their medical portion and, and just have that come up each time you're seeing your patient um, as an alert. So it reminds you, oh yeah, that's something that maybe there's a history or, you know, I need to just update that with my patient today. So let, let your practice management program work for you and, and utilize yeah. it because it's, it's a huge benefit to remembering things like that. 
And then tell your patient when you're doing an oral cancer screen. So when I'm doing my oral cancer screen, I say to my patient, I'm just screening you for oral cancer. It's not because I've seen something. It's because I do it for every single patient. So I say that straight away because I think as soon as you say cancer, everyone goes, oh, my God. Yes. What has she seen? So I want to put them at ease. And then I explain to them, I'm the only person in your life that's regularly looking in your mouth. So I'm the best person to do this and probably the only person doing it. So when I'm palpating the floor of their mouth and feeling their lips, I'm talking to them about, you know, oral cancers are better if we can, the earlier we detect them, the better outcomes that we have. So this is a really important step to our appointment. So I chat to them about that. And then the other thing I chat to them about is sunblock while I'm doing it. So I talk to all my patients about sunblock because where do we know is one of the really common places for um, oral cancers, the vermilion borders of the lips. And so many people put sunblock on their face and miss, don't put it on their lips and don't put a SPF lip balm on. So I chat to every single one of my patients about, do you know the importance of not just sunblock for your face, but uh, applying it to your lips as well and how common um, cancers there are. So, And then I say to them, have you actually seen your dermatologist or have you seen someone for a skin check? Do you know that's really important to do at least every two years? So I'm reminding them to get that area checked, get their face double checked, but I think we're in a good position to talk about putting sunblock on your lips and how important that is. Absolutely. Something I love about my new practice is that that's part of what we distribute to patients is the little samples of SPF chapstick. Um, Another little tip too is when I do my head and neck screening, I actually do it while I'm uh, screening my patient for blood pressure. So I put the cuff on, I tell them that I'm going to be doing that screening and a head and neck screening at the same time. And my whole thought process behind that is if it feels like a massage, maybe it'll bring their blood pressure down and relax them a little bit too in the process. But, you know, I'm just telling them I'm feeling for lumps or bumps that don't belong. And then as I continue that intraorally, I explain similar to you, Tabitha, just what I'm feeling for and what I'm looking for. Um, I think they feel really good when someone has said, I've checked this for you. Absolutely. I think that's like, oh, like this is a great service. And yeah, I feel good that someone's actually looked at this. So it's really important that you don't just, I think there's probably a lot of hygienists out there that look every time, but maybe don't mention it. It's important to communicate that with the patient as well. Absolutely. And for our metrics, there's a code for that. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head. I wish I had looked it up, but there is a code that we could put in when we do our oral cancer screening. You don't have to charge for it. The practices I've worked with in the past, we purposely don't charge for it, but you stack it on with the rest of your codes that you are submitting for the treatment you provided. And then this way you have the metrics behind it to it's documented, number one, and number two, you have you have the metrics just to, to see how frequently you know you're providing that that service for your patients. So it's an important way for us to be able to uh, document these things. And again, use your practice management programs. You can have um, I, I work with Dentrix, and there's very easy with templates and drop downs and things that you can just click into there. Yeah. So it makes it really streamlined and easy. It's not adding more work. It's just being um, you know, creating workflows that help make your day management, time management better. Yep. And we had a look at some statistics before the show doing some research. And when we have a look on the WHO website at the 2012 statistics, this is looking at cancer in general, and then we're going to come down to oral cancer. And uh, according to the estimates from the International Agency of Research on Cancer, which is the IRC, there were 14.1 million new cancer cases in 2012 worldwide of which 8 million occurred in economically developing countries, which contain about 82% of the world's population. These estimates do not include non-melanoma skin cancers, which are not tracked in cancer registries, which I thought was quite interesting that they don't um, track that. And the corresponding estimates for total cancer deaths in 2012 were 8.2 million, which is huge. And then they had, by 2030, the global burden is expected to grow to 21.7 million new cancer cases and 13 million cancer deaths simply due to the growth and ageing of the population. That is huge. Mm -hmm. However, the estimated future cancer burden will probably be considerably larger due to the adoption of lifestyles that are known to increase cancer risk, such as smoking, poor diet, physical activity, and fewer pregnancies in economically developed countries as well. So that was 
huge, I thought. And I was just like, wow, I couldn't believe that that kind of numbers are so big. And when you have a look at, they actually had a graph there at what was the leading causes of death worldwide. So cardiovascular disease came in as number one worldwide and number two was malignant neoplasms. Wow. So um, huge numbers. And obviously they're not all oral cancer numbers there. That is cancer in general, but oral cancer falls into that obviously. And we know that a substantial proportion of cancers can be prevented by reducing tobacco and heavy alcohol consumption as well. Absolutely. There was also in uh, 2010, almost 1.5 million of the estimated 8 million cancer deaths in the world were caused by tobacco smoking. And now we have to consider vaping as an issue as well. Mm. Um, In addition, the World Cancer Research Fund has estimated that between one-fifth and one-fourth of cancers worldwide are related to overweight or obesity physical inactivity, and poor nutrition, and thus could be prevented. Uh, many of these cancers related to infections, infectious agents such as the human papillomavirus, uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and uh, HIV. So uh, there's, there's a lot of behavioral changes that we actually can just have discussions about with our patients and raise awareness. I think people don't understand how comprehensive some of these uh, <clears throat> lifestyle or habitual habits that they have, habitual habits, I'm sorry, I just said the same word twice. Um, <laughs> some of these habits that they have really impact their their overall health. So um, it's just something that we can, you know, have that conversation about. Again, like we've said in the past, you don't have to know everything, but it's just making that introduction and raising awareness to your patients. And I think, you know, you brought up smoking cessation and that's a really important one where we're frontline workers again with this. Now, you may not have the time or even the knowledge to go completely into a full in-depth smoking cessation, but even just knowing where to refer. So I often address it with my patients. When I first graduated, I found this an awkward thing to talk about patients with. I didn't want to look like I was like, you shouldn't smoke and like a nagger. And so... I often say to patients, you've probably heard it a million times and I know you're smart and you know that you shouldn't, but if you're ready to give up or if you want to talk about giving up, I'm here to chat about that with you. Did you know that there's medications that can help you and that there's things that you can do with the doctor to actually take these steps? And obviously, I have a chat to them about we're not getting the results of your perio because of the smoking. And And I'm very just, very just honest when it comes to that look, the smoking doesn't help. And I, that's one of the things I love about the new classification because I really am a nerd and I love the new classification. But <laughs> when you're looking at the grading, I actually really love that they took in how much you're smoking because I have that laminated to show to patients. Yeah. So then I can just actually say to them, so see how because you smoke more than this, this puts you at the highest risk. And so because that's just kind of very scientific and this is just a fact, it's not like, I feel like it's not like me going, you should give up smoking. It's a bit like, this is a fact. This is what I'm going to tell you. And if you reduced, we could be moderate risk. And if you quit, we could lower your risk substantially. So I find that sheet a really easy way to have a non-confrontational talk about um, quitting smoking. And I had a patient the other day that came in and said, I've quit smoking since, um, I came and talked to you last time. I went and got Champix off my off my doctor, like you suggested. And so, like, I was like, Amazing. "Yes!" <laughs> and he goes, "Yep." I realized after that talk, I needed to do something about it. And so, you can be the reason why someone quits smoking, which changes their life economically, <laughs> socially, and health wise, like so many ways. This is why our profession is so damn essential. Because it's having these difficult conversations that changes people's lives in so many ways. It's like that butterfly effect, you know? So, yeah, they're not easy to have, but no. like, there's ways to go around it. And, and you're, the example you just gave, Tabitha, is a beautiful one of that because it's science. It's not us, right? Yeah. Like, we're just sharing the science with them. And a lot of times they don't even know. No, they don't. And I think a lot of patients definitely didn't realize that that's why their perio isn't getting better or that's why it's exacerbated so that's an important discussion and for me especially because I work in perio practice I think that's why we can kind of get results with the smoking a little bit because it's quite obvious or I'm having an immediate issue with this and I need to do something about it but I think there's another episode we'll have to chat about smoking cessation and vaping 
which yeah. is going to be our, our new horror of yeah. the future, unfortunately. It's so- it's so funny because vaping came on the scene as like an alternative to like a oh. healthier alternative yes. to smoking, right? To help you stop smoking. And it's actually what the science is showing us far worse. And uh, in clinic at school the other day, we had a patient and I was kind of coaching the student along with doing the cessation portion of it. And, you know, she was just like, it's a hard conversation for me to have because this is one of my peers that's in my chair and you know they're yeah. they're like partying phase of life and this is just what they're gonna do and and how do I talk about it? And I I just turned to her and said, I see that you're vaping. You're a young woman who is healthy right now. This is going to change that for you if you continue to do it. And I know that you don't see that long-term impact, but I can. And here's what's going to happen if you don't make a decision to stop doing this. And that's how we have the conversation. So the student was really grateful to see that and be able to find a way to have that conversation. Um, I actually found out some really interesting information about vaping the other day. So I was talking to a patient who said they did a combination of smoking and vaping. And they were vaping because it was um, financially better. And I said, oh, okay. I said, I actually don't know what vaping costs. And so he said before he started introducing vaping, he was spending 600 Australian dollars a month on cigarettes. Oh and I was goodness. like, whoa, my God. And um, he goes, the same amount in t- – because he vapes, unfortunately, with tobacco, uh, with nicotine. Um, so it's worse than smoking. But the equivalent costs him $25 a month. Oh, so it's less expensive to do this too. So, but one of the things I thought about straight away is, is that like, well, that's very accessible for young people, isn't it? $600 a month isn't accessible for most people, but that makes it accessible to a 15 or 16 year old. So I I see vaping in the future being a really big problem with younger people because of the, how accessible the cost is. In my corner of the world, it is a very big problem. I have two teenage children who both have shared with me that many of their peers are vaping and they can get their hands on it. Like you said, it's affordable and it's like the thing to do. It's it's kind of like a popularity thing as well. Like, oh, you vape? Yeah. You're cool, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very sad because the long-term effects, we don't have a lot of science and studies to show us yet, but what we do know is not good. Yeah, I agree. I think we're going to see really bad science effects coming our way when we have that longitudinal studies on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Just when we drill back to talk sorry. about. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. When we drill down on those cancers, those to oral cancers, when we have a look at America, close to 54,000 Americans will be diagnosed with an oral cancer each year and the cause of over 9,750 deaths, killing roughly one person per hour in America, 24 hours a day. That's a higher rate than COVID, huh? Yeah. And of those 54,000 newly diagnosed individuals, only slightly more than half will be alive in five years. Wow. So 57% will survive the five-year mark of that. That's pretty scary, isn't it? That's very scary. And that's something that, you know, we could be reducing those numbers. Yeah. And this is a number that's not significantly improved within decades. The survival number at five years from diagnosis was for many decades about 50%. So 57% is an improvement over the last 10 years. However, this is due to the increase of HPV 16 caused cancers, which are more vulnerable to existing treatment modalities. Um, so that's that's really what's impacted that significant uh, survival advantage. The death rate for oral cancer is higher than that of cancers which we hear about routinely as such as cervical cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, laryngeal cancers, or cancer of the testes, and many others. If you expand the definition of oral cancer and oropharyngeal cancers to include cancer of the larynx, the numbers of diagnosed cases will grow approximately 54,000 to 54,000 individuals uh, and 13,500 deaths per year just in the U.S., So uh, this is a worldwide problem, uh, much greater with over 450,000 new cases being found each year. And um, the WHO numbers will say the best available estimates 
that users should consider with caveats. So data collection and reporting in some countries is problematic. So these numbers are inaccurate. It could even be much higher than that. So that's half a million people a year. Yeah, and when we're thinking about, um, we we know statistically that the numbers are, are much higher in Asian countries due to smoking and chewing of betel nut, especially. And then we know in a lot of, in some of those countries, I know specifically in the Pacific Islands near us, it's not recorded properly either. And we know that the numbers are probably much higher than what we're actually seeing coming out of there, which is quite quite scary to sit, really think about what the true numbers are. Yeah, it really is. It's and and again, this is something that our profession has a direct line to, as you said, our first responders to, and and we can really make a change in this. Um, so impactful the care that we provide. And because when you think about breast cancer, when you think about cervical cancer, when you think about prostate cancer, even. Um, colon and bowel cancers, we have a screening service. So you go get your mammogram every two years or you go get your pap smear or you, um, you know, you can have a colonoscopy, especially if you're in a high risk group, you can get them more often. But we don't actually have an official screening system for oral cancer anywhere in the world. No. So, and then also, a lot of the devices that have developed over the years, a lot of the studies always come back and say they don't really enhance or the diagnostics of it. But I've always been of the mindset that if it even enhances you a little bit and helps you see something that you might not have caught with the naked eye, and you make that referral to the oral surgeon and do some more testing, isn't that better than not seeing anything at all, even if you came back and, and it was okay, and it wasn't something that was um, malignant? it's better to get tested. I've always had that thought process in my mind. Do you, have you ever worked, Tabitha, with like uh, any kind of those uh, detection devices? I've used a veloscope when I first graduated at that practice, but no one's had anything since then. And um, it was quite well received by patients. Again, I'm not sure if it was statistically you know, yeah. better, but you know, at least I think you maybe took a bit longer for checking and, you know, you're doing that extra step. I think one of the worrying things though is and this goes back to what we've talked about in the last two episodes is access to care. Yes. Well, really, we say there's no official, there is no, not we say, there is no official screening process. We're obviously screening as general hygienists, but you have to be privileged enough to come and see us. True. So what do we know about smoking rates and alcohol and risk factors? We know that they're higher in lower socioeconomic groups and then they're the groups that can't actually access affordable dentistry. So they're at a higher risk with less screening. So we've got a huge issue there. So we definitely need some kind of national health program with oral cancer where people can have an oral cancer screen with not maybe even being able to get the other things screened, but being able to be checked for oral cancer because we know that oral cancer is particularly dangerous because if it's not diagnosed in those early stages, We've got a really high death rate, and we see that with only 57 people surviving past the first five years, which is yeah. really, really scary. Right, right. So, and because it's painless, not often noticeable, people don't look in their mouth that much, and they don't know to look for like a weird bump. Maybe isn't that is maybe is something they really have to have a look at. They just think it's an ulcer, or they bit their cheek, or not really even aware of it. Absolutely. And a lot of times too, um, by the time they can feel something or we can see something, it's in a later stage of the prognosis of oral cancer. So that's the scary piece of this as well, is that by the time they feel it to report it to us, or it's large enough for our eyes to actually catch it, it's usually at that stage three, stage four position. Yeah. And so. People with oral cancer actually have a higher risk of producing a second um, primary tumour. And this means that patients who survive the first encounter with the disease have up to 20 times higher risk of developing second cancer. And the heightened risk can last five to 10 years after the first occurrence. And there's several types of oral cancers, but 90% are squamous cell carcinomas. And, and the other, sorry, go. I was just going to say that often, too, oral cancer is only discovered when cancer has metastasized to another location, most likely the yeah. lymph nodes of the neck. So it, sometimes it's not even, it's the primary source, but it's not even detected as the primary source. 
And I don't know if any of you have unfortunately treated patients who have had oral cancer, but the ones that do survive, it's often quite devastating when they've had to have part of their jaw removed or um, one of my really good friends, his sister had a sore dry cough that she was kind of ignoring for ages and she ended up having to have her whole lower jaw removed, all her lower teeth. They took um, rib and bone out of her leg and rebuilt. But psychologically, what she's been left with of having to look different and that obviously she was in an induced coma for 10 days and she's had comprehensive treatment and it's been really full on and she's going really well, but she's always got that secondary cancer fear hanging over her. But she's had to deal psychologically with learning to eat again, learning to speak again, changing how she looks, all of those things, along with not knowing if she's going to survive at all. It's been horrific for her. So, if you've seen a patient who's had to have those full reconstructions, there is so much emotional and psychological issues that go with this as well. So if we can detect this early, it's so important. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, this is the life altering, life saving care that we provide. And it's a screening that, you know, yes, we're bogged down for time, but this is more important in my mind than picking off pieces of calculus. Yeah. And this is why you've got to have those tough conversations about, you know, have you had HPV? And did you know that this puts you at a higher risk? And uh, something that's uncomfortable to talk to patients about, but especially if you have younger patients, I shouldn't discriminate. It could be older patients as well. Um, they, If they're having unprotected oral sex because they think about, you know, regular sex, that you should have protection, but don't think about oral sex, they could be passing HPV around and they actually don't even realise that it's a thing or that you can catch something that way. They, like when you speak to a lot of younger people, they think that's the safe option. Right, right. Yeah, they have no don't get idea. Pregnant, so it's great. <laughs> right, right. But they don't realise the Pandora's box that they're opening. No. Although I had – um, it's she's an American speaker and I'm really – about Anne Sp- Spilarich. Is that how you say it, Spilarich? I'm sorry if anyone's a friend with Anne or she's listening and I've said her last name wrong. But she's an amazing American speaker and she came to Australia a couple of years ago and spoke at a conference that I was at. And she was explaining to us, and this is just a really fun fact that everyone should know. I was so shocked, laughing but so shocked, that sexually transmitted diseases are actually in their highest in over 60s in nursing homes. I have heard that fact (laughs) as well. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she was like, because there's a lot of medication swapping, some day drinking, getting a little bit relaxed. And then obviously with some of the other issues that are coming in older age groups, maybe with um, the early stages of dementia or other issues, they're losing inhibitions. There's a lot of unprotected sex going on and a lot of spreading of sexually transmitted diseases, which I was having a giggle. I I said to my friend after me, I said, bring on the nursing home. But (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is where it's going off. But it was great to hear her talk. She was talking about geriatric dentistry and she was again was bringing it back. Well, actually, we have to talk about these patients. It's not just young people. Don't just put them in a box that this is. It's every age group. And so don't just talk to young people, but talk to everyone. It is really important. But HPV especially because we know it's going to increase their risk of oral cancer. And I just think most patients actually wouldn't have an idea. You know, Tabitha, this just like solidifies the fact that a hygienist should be employed full time in a nursing home. Because we could be managing biofilm and screening for oral cancer and be busy <laughs> all day on day. And talking about STDs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually think that was probably one of the areas that my education was lacking in. That didn't really get talked about when I was at uni. And that's probably because they didn't actually have the links yet because we're right. a bit older. And maybe the students now are learning a lot more about that. But there's a lot of links between sexual health and oral health. and we can actually be talking about a lot of things because, you know, we see a lot of sexually transmitted diseases orally. Absolutely. And and it's another way that we can uh, detect 
abuse as well. Yeah. Um, there was uh, my daughter who was 16 came up to me and she's like, mom, I'm sorry, this is, this is a little rated before I say it. So here's your warning. But she's like, mom, um, is it true that you can tell if people give oral sex by looking in their mouth? She's like, there's a video on TikTok that talks about it. And I said, well, yeah, if it's aggressive, you could get bruising in the back of your, like your soft palate's called posterior, posterior petechiae. She's like, oh, it's true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, like TikTok is talking about a lot of things with dentistry. I, really oh, think, yeah. I, I think I need to get on that platform. I'm not there yet. Um, just, to, just to, to see what's up. But um, yeah, so that's my 16 year old is learning about that on TikTok. So yeah. Um, well, did you know most sexually active people would contract HPV at some point in their lifetime? That's a very interesting fact. No, I did not know that. Yeah. And HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States. That I did know. And more than 100 types of HPV exist. I did not know that. No, I did not. And know more that. than 40 subtypes of HPV can affect the genital area and throat. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. And because when when that first oral cancer test came out, uh, I think it was called Visalite. It was created similar to there was like a vinegar wash that we used to have the patients rinse with. And then we used that light and it was to make those cells fluoresce. And it was it was um, formulated that way because that's how they were doing um, vaginal screenings to check. Oh, (laughs) so the. I'm assuming tissues are similar. We know that the, uh, the the microbiome in your mouth is one of the most aggressive, and the second most aggressive is uh, vagina. So, makes sense. We'll definitely right? put the explicit warning on today. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting so, down and dirty today. <laughs> so, when you look at oral HPV, it often has no symptoms. This means pe- that people don't realize they have an infection and are less likely to take steps necessary to limit the spread of the disease. And it's possible to develop warts in the mouth or throat in certain cases, but it's less common. The type of HPV that can turn into cancer, which is rare, you can have orophageal cancer, cancer cells from in the middle of the throat, including the tongue, tonsils, and pharynx walls, and these cells can develop the oral HPV. And early symptoms of this cancer can include trouble swallowing, constant earaches, coughing up blood, unexplained weight loss, enlarged lymph nodes, constant sore throats lumps in the cheeks, growth or lumps in the neck, and hoarseness. And um, if patients are noticing these things, then it's important that we're sending them off for further testing. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, this is uh, very, very connected to what we're doing and and how important it is that we are screening for these things and asking these questions. And yes, it's it's, it's, we got to kind of get beyond ourselves. They, it, it can be embarrassing. We can get a little bit of pushback, but when we explain the why behind what we're doing, patients will, I think, appreciate and understand that we are going above and beyond. So did you know there's 79 million Americans that currently have HPV? 79 million Americans? No. Yeah. So if you're sexually active in America, like, I don't know what the statistics are of you coming into contact with it, but it seems high. And 14 million people are newly diagnosed this year alone. Wow. Yeah. That's, COVID probably made it worse. <laughs> Seriously. Um, approximately 7% of American aged between 14 to 69 have oral HPV. 14 to 69. 7%. So that's a huge amount of people when you think about how big the American population is and what 7% is that. You know, when we're talking about those numbers in other statistics, when we talked about eating disorders and stuff like that, like that's huge numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And the number of people who have oral HPV has increased over the last three decades. It's more common in men than women. That's very interesting. Yeah, and approximately two-thirds of oral fragile cancers have a HPV DNA in them. Mm. Yeah. So very, very important that we have this in our medical history and ask our patients because when you think about 7% have oral HPV, that's a large amount of people. It is. And you know what I can't wait for to have a 
for um, us to be using saliva more as part of our screenings and, yeah. and the science to get more um, just economic that we could be having our patients spit in a, in a sample collection tube, sending that to the lab as part of what we do as, as part of our screening as an appointment, or they can be doing it from home and then finding out what their risk factors are, or if they even have HPV and they don't even know it yet. Saliva is such an underused medium of yeah. a diagnostic tool. Like I just, and we're, we're right on the cusp of that. Epigenetics is really moving forward. And I can't wait until it just becomes mainstream and standard of care for us I, because it's a game changer. 100% agree. 100% agree. I think that's another episode in itself. It really I, is. The one where we talk about spit. <laughs> Spit happens. So, so major risk factors for oral HPV are oral sex, as we'd already said, multiple partners. So having more than 20 sexual partners over your lifetime can increase your chances. That's probably something I don't overly feel comfortable talking about. I'll leave that to the doctor. Yeah. Um, smoking and drinking alcohol. So a high intake of alcohol increases the risk of a HPV infection in men. If you smoke and drink, you're at an even higher risk. Open mouth kissing. Some researchers said that open mouth kissing is a rich risk factor and it can be transmitted from mouth to mouth. Wow. And being male. Men have a greater risk of receiving an oral HPV diagnosis than women. So that's quite interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable how the statistics are. Like when you really dig into this, you don't even realize how prevalent this is. Yeah. So, you know, reducing your alcohol into healthy amounts, quitting smoking and having protected sex and getting the HPV immunization. And also having a conversation about what kind of mouthwash you're using and how frequently, what's the alcohol content in that? Because that could also be a risk factor. Um, another interesting fact about oral cancer is um, the relation of oral biofilm and it as a trigger for oral cancer. And there are a lot of uh, metabolic studies um, where research is being done on bodily, bodily fluids, including saliva, as we were just saying, as uh, biological fluid derived from blood that reflects the physiological state of the body, as well as oral biofilm metabolism. So um, a lot of science is, is coming to fruition about how impactful oral biofilm, pathogenic biofilms are in the triggers of things like different cancers and oral cancer is one of them. So again, it, it goes back to that link of um, oral biofilm, biofilm disruption and how important it is and, and taking uh, that really seriously in the care that we provide as well. Yeah. And so I just think that it's, important to remember that oral cancer doesn't discriminate doesn't matter what subgroup you're in you're still at risk you might be higher than others but you everyone's still at risk so screen everyone that comes in that door and I really hope to see some kind of screening process for those people that can't afford to access care and come to private practice because there's a huge part of our population that is missing out and you know, it's probably a theme that you're going to hear a lot through all of the podcasts and we talk about where there needs to be an increase in access to care. And that's just something that we're all going to have to work on together on how we get get that care out there. But I'd love to see a national oral cancer screening service Absolutely. where even if, you know, there's another role for dental hygienists working in general practitioner practices, screening patients when they come to get their blood pressure done and they come to get things done. They could be, you know, those diabetic patients can be having a screen. Everyone can be having an oral cancer screen. I think that we're actually amazingly placed to be working in a GP's office. I agree with, with you. With a doctor 100%. being there doing screens. And, you know, for some hygienists, especially maybe they don't love doing the treatment side or they've got a sore back or sore arms. And, you know, I had a, a, a good friend who she unfortunately had to stop working not because she didn't love the job, but she had really bad carpal tunnel and she couldn't hold the instruments anymore. But a job like that would have been fantastic for her because if you're just holding a mirror, it's not putting that strain on you and we could have still been using all her wonderful skills and knowledge. Absolutely. And I actually think that how amazing would an endocrinologist or your GP or certain doctors having us as part of the office and bringing in that oral healthcare knowledge and bringing in that screening that could be an amazing service. 
Absolutely could. We So we've established already that we could be in all of these medical practices. We could be in nursing homes. And um, knowing that the prevalence of oral cancer and HPV-related oral cancer diseases starts at the age of 14, we could be employed in educational systems as well, screening students for oral cancer, screening students and um, or teaching them how to screen themselves and feel, teaching them all of these important things that we have just discussed. So um, hygienists do need to be disseminated out beyond private practice so that we can help more people. Yeah, and I think there's often a discussion in groups. Um, I'm not sure if this is an American thing, but it's definitely an Australian theme with we're overpopulated, there's too many of us, the market's too difficult. I actually think there's not enough of us. And when they have a look at the numbers in Australia, we've actually just got a distribution problem where too many people want to work in the cities and, and not enough out. But when you think about all the roles that we could be in and if we were used appropriately, they need 10 times the amount that we have. We need way more because we could be being used so much more and we're really underutilised at the moment. And, you know, I think about when we think about nurse practitioners in in general nursing and how they've really expanded their scope and and the different things that they do now. And a lot of them work in um, GPs, you know, doing stitches and and bandages and dressing changes and, and different things. I see us doing something similar to that where we could work in in different kind of practices and expand how we treat people and screen people and be part of that team and it and it's really about how you and I advocate all the time we're part of the medical team and we need to learn to work collaboratively with other medical professionals and they need to learn to work with us and we need to stop being to the side we need to be there in the epicenter with them and and working I, I cannot agree more. So hopefully, you know, our voices will inspire your voices and, and we collectively together can stand up and, and change the landscape of how we work. That's what I would like to see for the future because we are all badass hygienists and we can do more than scrape teeth and, and our care is so essential, but I would like to see us utilize that essential care appropriately and not, you know, polish teeth and throw floss and a toothbrush of people and say, see in six months, I want to see us really use our knowledge, our skills and our ability to be able to reduce the, the healthcare impact of uh, chronic diseases and, and cancers and all of the things that our care is related to. Yeah. So on that note, happy oral cancer awareness month, make sure you are, you know, if we can inspire you to do your screenings, do your best, start small, start doing a little bit at a time and expand on that because each person that you do more on, you have the potential of saving their life. And that is so huge. And just think about how much their loved ones would be appreciative of you and thanking you for doing that and, and how that will ignite your love and passion for what you do. That's huge. Yep. No, I agree. No, so, thank you so much for listening along with us. And um, yeah, you know, as usual, we get distracted. But <laughs> We hope you enjoyed the episode. And again, we'd love some feedback on what you'd like to hear more of or less of. (laughs) (laughs) But we'd really like to hear what what subjects you're interested in. We've got lots of things in in the works, but we're definitely flexible and can move things around as well. So thank you for listening. And if you ever want to join the conversation with us too, please send us either a message on Instagram at Disrupting Dentistry Podcast. You can email us at DisruptingDentistryPodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us out to us on Facebook. But yeah, let us know. We we would love to hear your area of expertise and have our Dental Nerd Fest with you as well. Thank you for joining and keep disrupting. Thank you.